I was Googling the membership vows right before calling people up because that was another thing I forgot today. Um, need a break. <laughs> need a break so bad. Um, I remember back in seminary, it was the mid-1990s, and I was driving home from St. Louis across the country, a thousand miles to the D.C. area, to Northern Virginia, to see my family. And I had been driving for hours and hours and hours. I had managed to get through West Virginia along Interstate 64, driving my, my shiny blue seminary mobile. It was a 1988 Ford Tempo made by the United Auto Workers in Kansas City, and they were ashamed they put that sticker on the back window because it was a seminary mobile. It had a cassette deck that sometimes worked. It had a CB radio mounted underneath the console that did not work. It, uh, it had... It, had the, the whole back half of it was flaking off and the, 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 the clear coat. But I was driving and I'd gotten through West Virginia and, and I was, was heading toward, you know, Interstate 81, kind of middle of nowhere in the Virginia mountains. I had just seen a, a wild turkey and its little baby turklets behind it walking <laughs> along. It was really beautiful. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this guy on the side of the road hunched over with his arms on his knees, and I I kept driving. I was like, did I just see a guy? I looked in my rearview mirror. He was still there. I was like, I wonder if he needs help. I wonder if he's okay. This is before, you know, uh, 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 cell phones, when cell phones existed in Manhattan only, uh, and rich people built into the console of their car, and they were huge. Uh, this, this is a pretty isolated stretch of road. Not a whole lot of cars on this highway. There had been a truck behind me. I was thinking maybe the truck will check on him. You know, I was, I was kind of afraid. I didn't know, you know. There, there'd be no way. I, the only thing I could do is ask him to get in the car. And I didn't know anything about this guy and what he was doing on the side of an interstate highway in the middle of, of nowhere. I didn't know if he was all right. I didn't know if he wasn't all right. And I kept driving. And I kept driving. And as I kept driving... It was as if God himself was in the car with me, the weight of it coming upon me, the conviction. I knew my heart was hard. I knew that I was willfully disobeying Christ by not turning around, going back, and seeing if this guy was still there, seeing if he needed help. And I knew as God weighed upon me that he was going to deal with me over my lack of love. What does it mean to love your neighbor? We're going to look at a passage in the gospel according to Luke. It's Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. You can follow along with me as I read. These are uh, the words of Christ the Lord. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that's a religious scholar, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, uh, 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 Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, oh, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A a man was going down from from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they 
they went away, leaving him there half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he took the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn. He took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. What does it look like? to love your neighbor? What's it look like in this story that Jesus tells about this Samaritan? Well, love looks like changing your plans unexpectedly. I don't know what this Samaritan's schedule was, but I know that the priest was not willing to adjust his schedule, and the other religious guy, the Levite, was not willing to adjust his schedule. They were staying on task. And this Samaritan, however, whatever he had planned, he just immediately took days out of his schedule. He got the guy, he took him to an end. It means being willing to change everything. You know, for some of you, you know a little bit what it's like as parents, because as parents, you know what it's like to have to be on call to give love to another human being 24-7. You know, you can't say, oh, it's three in the morning, I can't take care of you. When your child is sick, you can't say, oh, I have a job interview tomorrow. You're just going to have to stay sick. You've got to stop and you've got to take care of them. You know what that's like. And what Jesus is saying to you and to all of us is what you're learning there. I want you to give that same level of love to your neighbor, to be on call 24-7, to do what I could not do in that car 23 years ago, to stop, turn around, and change your plans. Love looks like being willing to change plans unexpectedly. But love also looks like empathy. Did you notice how how Jesus said that the Samaritan, when he saw this man suffering, when he saw him in verse 33, he took pity on him. That means there was something happening inside the Samaritan, something going on internally. Empathy is that ability to enter into another person's experience, to feel deeply for them. It involves sympathy. It involves compassion. It means seeing another person not as a threat, not as your competitor, but but as yourself, as an extension of your own family and feeling what they must feel, seeing the world from their perspective and showing them compassion. He looked at him and he took pity on him. That's what what we talk about when we talk about the biblical concept of solidarity, that we are our brother's keeper, that each of us is responsible for the other seven billion humans on the planet. It's, It's so different from the way American culture thinks and perceives about things. You know, Americans, we tend to think Uh, For those of you that are Americans, we tend to think independently and autonomously that we are our own island and that we are only in bonded relationships with other people when we choose to be in that kind of relationship. Uh, The way it's often explained in an American context uh, is is the notion of, I've I've shared a year ago, the, the concept of the famous violinist 
the idea is if you can imagine a world-famous violinist who has a very tragic disease and he is going to die immediately, and yet he then takes this tube and he, he hooks himself up into your chest cavity and so that he is then attached to you. And, and so long as he's attached to you, he is draining life out of you. He is alive because he is drawing it out of you. And in an American context, the way we rationalize this is we say, well, you, have never, you never chose to be committed to this famous violinist, uh, can you unplug him? Well, if you unplug him, he dies. Is that your responsibility? Well, no, because you never chose to be uh, attached to this violinist. You never gave him permission. You never entered into a a social compact in which you would be obligated to take care of and to sacrifice your life and your privacy and everything else for a famous violinist with a tragic disease. It's not your fault that he's going to die. Of course you can unplug yourself. And, And Jesus is saying, no, that's your neighbor. Whatever you do not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Whatever you do to the least of these, you did to me. We are all in solidarity. It's the solidarity of the human race. It's a foundational Christian doctrine of creation that you are your brother's keeper and that you are responsible. The priest, the Levite, when they walk by on the other side, it's not that they're just failing to go out of their way to love that man. They are actively hating that man in a ditch because they are obligated to sacrifice their time and their career and their life and their fortune and their future. The Bible never calls this mercy ministry. It calls it justice because we owe it to those who are weak. We owe it to those who are sick. We owe it to those who are suffering. We owe it to those who are outcast to go out of our way to help them because we are called to love our neighbor. We are all neighbors. Love, it means being willing to change your plans unexpectedly. Love means uh, 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 biblical solidarity. Love means empathy. Love also looks messy and uncomfortable. It says that this man, Jesus says that this man in the ditch was bleeding and he was unconscious and he was naked. That's not a pretty sight. And, you know, to go for this Samaritan to then go and get off his donkey, to go down into this ditch, to pick up this man, that's, that means a whole lot of weight shifting onto you. That means his sweat is on you, his blood is all over you, he's bleeding on you, he's... he's, he's and, and the optics are not good. I mean, if you pick up a half-dead, bleeding, naked man and throw him into the back of your pickup, you're driving down Ladue Road. It does not look good. People are going to think weird things. You know, but it's, it's messy. Love is messy. Love doesn't make you look good. Messy isn't comfortable. And love also looks like providing for them until they're well. And this is a lot more involved than liking someone on Facebook. He actually took him to a, to a hotel. He got him a room in the inn. He paid. He bandaged up his wounds. He paid two silver pieces. That's a lot of money. That's like, I'm going to be back in a couple weeks. And when I come back, if there's more to pay, I'll pay that as well. Because the Bible says love always perseveres. And love looks like doing all of this at your own expense. He pays for it. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Now, the question that the, you know... Bible scholar, seminarian, uh, teacher of the law, then has is well, then who's my neighbor? You know, to whom do we owe this love? Uh, you know, this is where the religious teacher got hung up because, because Jesus actually interjects something into this story that would have been very, very offensive to a first century Jewish reader, to a first century Christian Jewish reader. 
And that's he injects the notion of race into this equation. Because he's talking to a Jewish man about a Jewish man in a ditch. And the person that he puts into the story who comes to the rescue is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along. Uh, They got along, you know, about like Muslims and Hindus in India. They got along, you know, about like... uh, white settlers and Native Americans in the U.S., um, Samaritans were despised. Samaritans were considered inferior within a Jewish concept. Samaritans were those ancestors of some of the Jewish people who, when the Jews went into exile, there there were some, the people of the land, who stayed behind, and then there were other people groups that, that that, 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 that were imported into Palestine during those centuries. And, and, and they had other gods, and they had other religions, and they intermarried. And, and out of that weird mix came this people that weren't real Jews. They were Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They were unclean. Their culture was inferior. Their worship was inferior. Their Bible, they got rid of all the books of the Bible except the first five. And those five, they completely changed all the details in order to suit themselves. They were people who were loathed because they were unclean. They were an abomination. They were the enemy. And above all, they were racially deficient because they had mingled with the Gentiles. Now, why does Jesus have to go and make this a race thing? Well, he does it because we have this inbuilt but fallen tendency to love people like ourselves. We love people who look like ourselves. We love people who think like ourselves. We love our family members. We take care and sacrifice for our family members. And you think, look at me. Look at how loving I am. I love my family. But Jesus says, even the Gentiles do that. Even unbelievers, even pagans, he says, love their family. The real question is, do you love your enemy? The real question is, do you love your neighbor who's not like you? The real question is, do you love people of other races, of other people groups, of other nationalities, people who, who, who don't have your same cultural background, who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who have a whole different set of assumptions than you do, people that you might look down upon, people you might think you're superior to. You would never say it, but you assume that your way is always the better way. Jesus is saying that real love crosses over lines of race, as well as nationality, class, culture. I've shared with you some of my own way that I I, I am dealing with race stuff. And, uh, you know, I never owned a white sheet with a hood. Uh, I never had a Confederate flag uh, and didn't really use the N-word, never said that I was better than people of other races. But I I was raised American, and I was raised white. And by that, I mean culturally white. I was raised with a whole set of assumptions. And, and, you know, whenever I hear about a shooting in St. Louis, I get this almost immediate impulse toward justice. I want the killing to stop. I want people who kill people to be locked up where they can't do any more damage. I don't want them hurting other people. And, and so I'm like, throw the book at them. And, and then I stop myself. And I have to stop myself and say, okay, I'm going to picture this person. I don't know who the shooter was. But I'm going to picture him as a white kid, 16 years old, with freckles, blonde hair, blue eyes, and a Parkway West letter jacket. And then watch how I feel. Because suddenly when it looks like somebody who could be my son, somebody who could be my family, 
somebody who's my own people group, somebody who culturally has my own background, somebody who's my own race. Let's put that out there. That's what Jesus is talking about. He injects race into this teaching on love because it's so very important that we deal with that. And when I then think of him as this West County kid with freckles, then I still want justice. But I also am wondering what he's feeling like sitting alone on a bench in a jail cell downtown. I'm also wondering if he's going to get a good lawyer and have fair representation. I'm also wondering what it was in his background and his story and his family that put him on a path toward violence to actually take another person's life. Still justice, but mixed with empathy. And that empathy gap is our racism. That empathy gap is our hate. That empathy gap is the gap in love that we are not willing to give to anybody except people that we put in our own category. And that's why Jesus is injecting race into this. Last time I, I taught about race, a lady came up to me after the service. I had never met her before. I haven't seen her since. Uh, it, was, it was when we were teaching on Acts 15 in the council at Jerusalem when the, the Jewish believers decided to allow uh, uh, Gentile believers of a different race to, to have the full privileges as Christians and basically handed over the church to them. They knew the numbers. This lady came up to me and she wanted to know, why did you make that all about race? And maybe you're sitting here thinking, Greg, why are you making this passage all about race? I am not making this passage all about race. Jesus Christ, the Lord of earth and heaven, who will judge in the coming age, the living and the dead, is making this all about race. Saying, if you're going to love, you are not loving your neighbor until your neighbor is of a different race than you, and a different cultural background, and a different nationality, until you're actually going to love them, Jesus is saying, you are not following me. Thank you. Jenny Whitman shared with me yesterday a story. Years ago, she had, uh, she had been invited to the home of a, a prominent uh, African-American pastor in North St. Louis, a guy who would look at our church and say, that's a nice small group you got. Um, and as she was there in his home, she, she just started asking him about his background. He had grown up in the South as a kid, and uh, she asked him what that was like and asked him also, just like she would with any other human being, she just asked him about his story, his background, and they talked for a good long time. And afterwards, she heard through a friend that he said that that was the first time a white person had asked him about his life. Friends, if you want to love, that means reaching out. That means asking questions, getting to know people, knowing their story, treating them like human beings, treating them like your neighbor. It was unexpected what Jesus did when he made the Samaritan the guy who actually loves because Samaritans didn't like Jews any more than Jews liked Samaritans. And Jesus is charging each of us to be deliberate, to add that empathy, that compassion, that love, that investment, that solidarity to those who are of a different race. That's our challenge here in St. Louis in 2018. So how is that possible? How is it possible to love that kind of way, that consistently? We're fallen beings. We're broken. You know my sin. I tell it to you every week. And Jesus is saying, you've got to stop trying to justify yourselves. You've got to be the big, shameful sinner like the rest of us. That's the basic hard issue here. Jesus is addressing it. He says in verse 29 that that the, the teacher of the law, this religious leader with whom he was discussing love, he was trying to justify himself when he asked, who is my neighbor? <coughs> we all try to justify ourselves in different ways, you know. 
Maybe you confess your sin and you say, gosh, I am so sorry. I'll never do it again. Forgive me. I'm really not like that. I'm not that kind of guy. Is that a confession of sin? I'm not that kind of guy. I am righteous. I am upright. What I did over there, that was just a fluke. I don't need a savior. I'm strong. I'm really a good guy. I just made a mistake. No, it's, it's to actually be broken and to need a savior. It's the hard issue here. This teacher, he has this inbuilt need that we all share with him to justify our existence, to make a name for ourselves, to be the expert, to be the one with answers, to be the good guy, to be the person that's loved, to measure up. And it's a cruel treadmill that is never, ever, ever going to forgive you. And it will always demand more and more from you. And it will always leave you guessing and hoping that you've done enough. This teacher doesn't want to own the fact that, that even with all of his religion, he's still a big, shameful, broken sinner. And you can never love if you're trying to justify yourself. You see, like the teacher, you're going to have to redefine who your neighbor is so that you can be a good guy because I don't love those people over there. I'm not really invested in them. I mean, I don't wish ill on them, but I'm not going to go out of my way to give them a kidney or something like that. Okay, that's, but that's justifying yourself. That's redefining who is your family, who you're committed to in order to justify yourself. That self-justification prevents you from actually loving people. Like the teacher, you're going to have to minimize your own sins and maximize your own righteousness. I mean, he rattles off the two greatest commandments, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's actually thinking he has done this. And therefore, he will live. And Jesus says, oh, okay, sure, do that. You'll live. And then he starts to say, whoa, 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 hold on just a second, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? You see, because he hasn't done that. If you're trying to justify yourself, you're going to have to minimize your sins. You're going to have to make yourself think that you're actually righteous. And that means you're not going to be actively loving other people. If you're putting your sins in the best light and someone else's sins in the worst light, you're still trying to justify yourself. You won't be able to love them when you're doing all of that. Even if you were perfect, sinless and righteous, which is not possible in a fallen world, it's still all about you. Because every time you, you know, bake somebody cookies, every time you give them a compliment, every time you open a door for somebody, every time you lend somebody money, every time you act, do some act of service, if, if, if you're still trying to justify yourself, it's all really self-centered. It's all about you. Because you are trying to do this massive religious self-justification project, and all these people that you're loving and serving are just cogs in the machinery of your own self-righteous project. See, real love, it's self-forgetful not about me. It's not because I have to be a good person. It's not because I want to have a good reputation. It's not because I want to be righteous. It's because they need something. And you're pouring yourself in to them. You've got to stop trying to justify yourself and be a big sinner like the rest of us. I've shared this story before about the medical resident who, who got on the rotation at a, a STD clinic and uh, he showed up for his first day of that rotation. And, uh, and he walked in this room in the clinic. It's just, it's the waiting room. And there are all these people and there are all these men and they're in line. And there's one little window up at the front and, and it's closed. And so he goes up to the window and he knocks on it. And uh, after waiting a while, waiting too long with his watch, finally the, the, the window slides open and this lady looks at him and says, what do you want? He says, um... I'm, I'm here, uh, I need to see the doctor. And she's like, get in line with everybody else. She slams it shut. And he looks around, he says, uh, he knocks on it again. Another long wait. Opens, window opens again. 
says, get in line. He says, no, you don't understand. I'm a doctor. And she says, I don't care if you're the Pope. Get in line. You got your disease the same way as everybody else. And she slams it shut. And he sits there. And he doesn't know what to do. So he goes and he, he goes to the back of the line and he stands in the line. And as he stood in that line, he said a feeling of shame came over him as if everything that was defective about him, everything he had done, everything he had lusted after, everything he had thought about came upon him as a weight and he felt the weight of his shame massively pressing down on him for the very first time owning how broken he really was as a man. Friends, if you want salvation... You've got to stand in the big, shameful line of sinners with the rest of us because that's how you're going to see Jesus. He's the great physician. He's the only one who can heal us. He's the only one who can teach us to love. We have to stop trying to justify ourselves and actually let ourselves be shameful sinners loved by Jesus and loved by his Father. That means switching who you identify with in this parable. You know, in every parable of Jesus, pretty much all of them, there's always one figure in the parable who represents Jesus or who represents God or the kingdom, the king. And then there's usually one figure in the parable who represents the hearer. And you have to wonder who, as Jesus began telling this story about this this Samaritan, you have to wonder who exactly this teacher of the law that he's speaking with, who, who he would have been identifying with. Okay, he hears the story. He's like, oh, there's, there's a Levite. That's me. The Levite walks by on the other side, doesn't love him. Levite's a big shameful sinner. Okay, I'm not the Levite. So then here's more of the story. Oh, the priest, the priest. There's a priest. I'm the priest. I'm a religious scholar. Look at me. I'm the priest. He's a good guy. I'm a good guy. And the priest walks by on the other side, doesn't love him. He's a big shameful sinner. He's like, I'm not the priest. And then he tells about a Samaritan. He's like, I am not the Samaritan. They are unclean filthy, racially deficient, awful people. Not that. Okay, so then, uh, so who is he? Jesus is talking with this Jewish man about a Jewish man who's in a ditch, about a Jewish man who's bleeding, about a Jewish man who's naked, about a Jewish man who cannot justify himself, cannot save himself, cannot rescue himself. He is completely helpless, unconscious, naked, filthy, bleeding in a ditch, and he's going to die. And he's talking to a Jewish guy about this Jewish guy. And he's wanting us, he's wanting you to identify that you are the guy in the ditch. You are the one who can't justify yourself. You are the one who cannot heal yourself. And like the teacher, like the guy in the ditch, you can't save yourself. We're helpless. It's like when I was driving back to D.C. after I had hardened my heart and not loved this man who may have been in need on the side of the road. I kept driving, and I knew that God was going to deal with me. As I kept driving, I was just trying not to think about it. And about 40 minutes later, my dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree, and I knew it was the Lord. And I found myself stranded on the side of Interstate 64 in the mountains of Virginia with a car that was absolutely dead and I had no cell phone and the CB radio didn't work and all I could do is sit there and wait and start walking toward the next exit hoping there might be a payphone. 
That's because the Lord loved me. And he wasn't going to let me harden my heart. It was actually on the way back to St. Louis a week later that I was driving through Louisville, Kentucky, and saw a woman uh, on the ground with her head inside her car. Door was open. I, I stopped. I was like, I've never stopped for someone before. I got out and asked her if she was okay. She was like, fine, I'm just hearing something weird. Wanted to get closer, find out what this weird sound is. I'm good. Thanks for checking. Um, but Jesus was showing me that in order to love, I had to first be loved. In order to, to actually lo- love another person, I had to experience his love and his care. And I had to be brought to that place where I was helpless and broken and could not fix myself. You know, who is Jesus in this parable? He's always in there. Every parable, he's there somewhere. Who is Jesus? Jesus isn't the priest. Jesus isn't the Levite. Jesus isn't the guy in the ditch. Jesus is the person of a different race from you. Jesus is the one who was your enemy in our ages-long war with God in which we don't want to follow him and we're angry at him because of all the stuff he does to us. Jesus, your enemy, so different from you, is the one who saw you in a ditch. And when he saw you in a ditch, he got down off his donkey And he walked and he entered into the ditch. That's what he was doing in his incarnation. When God became man, he was walking into the ditch to be with us in the ditch. God was making you his neighbor as a human being. Jesus, the God-man, then was obligated to love his neighbor as himself. And when you became his neighbor and you were in a ditch, he walked into that ditch and he got you and he bandaged your wounds and he cleaned you up and he carried your body and he took you to a place of safety and then he went and he paid the entire price for your recovery. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He did it because he loves you and you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself until you know that Jesus has loved you as his neighbor and he loves you right now and his grace is never going to let go of you so that you can actually live loved. Three years ago, I shared the story from a scrub brush desert town of Queen Creek, Arizona, where high school bullies were throwing trash, garbage, at a sophomore girl by the name of Shy Johnson. We've got her photo. Can we get that photo? They called her stupid. They pushed her around in the halls and they threw trash at her. You see, Shy's brain works at only a third grade level because of a genetic birth defect. But Shy knew enough to feel hate. Her mom says this. She'd come home every night at the start of the school year crying and upset. That permanent smile that she always had, that gleam in her eye, that was all gone. Her mom says she tried to talk to the teachers. And then she tried to talk to the administrators and she got nowhere. There was no one going to intervene to protect her daughter. And so she thought, I need to find out who this is. I'm going to hunt these kids down. I'm going to make them see reason my way. And so she, she talked to, to, to Carson Jones, who was uh, a senior. He was actually the, the, uh, the starting quarterback of the school's undefeated football team. And he had once escorted Shy to the Special Olympics. And she talked to him. She said, listen, just keep your ear to the ground. Maybe you could get me some names. Carson Jones didn't do that. He did something different. Instead of ratting the other kids out, he decided to to take one in. He took in Shy. 
he started asking her to eat at the cool kids' lunch table with him and with his teammates. He says, I just thought that if they saw her with us every day, maybe they'd start treating her better. Telling on kids would have just caused more problems. And it got better. The team's starting running back, Tucker Workman, made sure somebody was walking between classes with Shy. They would show up at the end of one of her classes and they would escort her down the hall to her next class before making it to their own classes by the bell. In classes, cornerback Colton Moore made sure she sat in the row right behind the team. Just step back a second, this author says. He says, in some schools, it's the football players who do the bullying. But at Queens Creek High School, they're the ones stopping it. And not with their fists, but with straight-up love for a kid most teenage football players wouldn't even notice, much less hang out with. Volleyball player Shelly Larson said this. She said, I think about how sweet these boys are to her, and I just want to cry. I can't even talk about it. Uh, Bryce Oaks, an offensive lineman, said, I was parking my car yesterday, and I saw a couple of the guys talking to her. They had been real nice. I think it makes a difference around here. And the best thing? Football players did not tell a soul they were doing it. Carson's mom said this, I didn't know about any of this until three weeks ago. Uh, Finally, he showed me this news article that they wrote up locally, and I said, are you kidding me? Why didn't you tell me about this? But all of a sudden, Shy started coming home as her bubbly self once again. And when her mom asked why she was so happy, she said, I get to eat lunch with my boys. We got a picture of her with them. I get, a reporter says, I get emailed stories like this a lot. He writes, most of the time they don't pan out. They turn out to be half true or true for the first week, but not for the second week. But when I walked into Queens Creek High School cafeteria on Tuesday unannounced, there was four foot tall shy with 11 senior football players eating her lunch around the most packed lunch table you've ever seen, grinning like it was Christmas morning. It was Carson's birthday, and she'd made him a four-page birthday card, and on one of the pages she wrote in big crayons, Lucky Girl. He says, I asked Shy to show me where she used to eat lunch, and she pointed over to the corner to a room in the back, away from all the rest of the kids, to the special ed lunchroom. And she said, it's so much more fun out here. Friends, we're all damaged in this life. Maybe your brain doesn't work the way it's supposed to be, and maybe you're just like her in all sorts of ways, spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically. And in this world, there are people who are going to call you names. And in this world, there are people who are going to throw trash at you, friends. But the starting quarterback's name is Jesus. And he has called you and invited you to his table to eat with him. And his glory and his grace and his power and his love has got your back, not just here, but for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that when we were lost, when we were in a ditch, Jesus the starting quarterback, came and he rescued us. I give you thanks, Father, for your grace, and I consecrate to you the elements on this table, this wine, this cup, this bread, that you administer your love and your grace, Lord, that we would live as ones who are loved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.